Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, if you raise your hand, uh, we'll give you a copy of uh, that Bible. And if you get a Bible from us, it's page 478. It's a series titled Faithful, and this is part two. Part one was an examination of the life of Joseph. This is part two, and today is the third week of part two as we look at the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. So it's important, especially this time of year, because people are traveling, and so maybe you missed the first week, or maybe, maybe you were here last week, missed the one before that, whatever. I just want to make sure we're up to speed. So I want to review and just remind you what we're looking at. We're looking at Daniel, and, uh, and we know Daniel, and we know his three boys, uh, most familiar by the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they are important characters in this book, as well as King Nebuchadnezzar. Those are the kind of four... Uh, chief human characters in the book. The character in uh, the book of Daniel, the main character, is God and the sovereignty of God. It's true, obviously, of all of Scripture, but we really see it in this story. Uh, this story is a uh, historical account of events that took place. Uh, they begin for us when Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. Uh, he captures the city and uh, among different strategies that are a part of his victory strategy is he takes and deports uh, the king, uh, some of his family, some of the best and the brightest, and Daniel and the boys were part of that. They were brought back to Babylon, and the king said, you know, good help is hard to find, so if we could take these guys, because they're extraordinary, remember the boys at this time would have been about 14, 15, 16 years old, if we could take them and somehow assimilate them into our culture, if we could do that, they, they could really prove to be helpful to us. So that was the process that was started in chapter 1. We're, we're going we're gonna to teach them our ways. We're going to feed them our diet. We're gonna, they're going to learn the literature, the language. And, and we said it was the, the key verse in chapter 1. And in a way, it's kind of a repetitive verse in terms of importance that we see all through the book is Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself. Uh, uh, Daniel resolves. Today, uh, we're going to look at, at Daniel chapter 3, and noticeably absent from the story today is Daniel. So the boys come front and center, and we see the same resolve in their mind that we saw in Daniel's mind. Uh, Daniel has this uh, situation in terms of food. Uh, the king wants him to eat this food. His supervisor says, you got to eat it. I'm worried about losing my head. Daniel kind of constructs this little test period. And, and what we learn in chapter 1, verse 17, is God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And to Daniel, he gave the ability to, to, to see and hear and interpret all kinds of dreams and visions. When the king interviewed these boys at the end of the three-year period, they were found to be, verse 21 of chapter 1, ten times brighter, ten times sharper, ten times better than all the others. Chapter 2 was a, a king's dream, and that's what we looked at last week. And the king has a dream. It, it's a dream where he goes to, and you see it in verse 2, the magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, Chaldeans. Those are his go-to guys, kind of his cabinet. Those are the ones that he would go to for insight and help and all sorts of directions. And he says, I don't remember the dream, so tell me what the dream is. Tell me what the interpretation is. They couldn't do it. In, in, in fact, they, they were so driven because the king says, you're going to die if you don't do this. So driven that in, in chapter 2, verse 10, they said there's not a man on earth who could do this. 
What you've asked is unprecedented. It's unrealistic. No human could do it. In fact, he says, verse 11, moreover, the thing that the king demands is difficult, and there's no one who could declare it except the God, the king of the gods. I'm sorry. There's no one who could declare it to the king except the gods and, and whose dwelling place is, is not in a mortal flesh. In other words, remember the, the paraphrase, except the, the gods, and they, they, don't, they don't hang out with people like us. Says so there's this dream, but there's, there's no human could do this. They got that part right. Then they talked about these gods, little g, but there is the God, the God of, of Daniel. When Daniel comes and we saw all sorts, all sorts of amazing things about Daniel. Daniel goes to the king. He asks the king for a little bit of time, not, not because he's just trying to, to negotiate his way out, but he's, he's giving God the opportunity to give him this interpretation. God, in fact, does. God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream in a dream. And Daniel's response, remember, that's what we talked about last week. He said, if that was us, there might have been that, at least I'll go with me. If that was me, there would have been that flinch that when I got that dream, I'd have gone right to Nebuchadnezzar, remember? So we talked about last week and go, Nebuchadnezzar, you're one lucky king because here I am and I got it. What we saw is Daniel's humility as well as the dependence upon God. In chapter 2, verse 20, he said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for his wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes times. He removes kings. He lifts people up. He is sovereign. He is the one who reveals not just in a macro way, but he says in verse 23 to me as well. Daniel then goes to the king. He gives the king the dream. Remember the dream? There was this statue. There was a head of gold, and then there was bronze, and they represented empires, different empires. The Babylonian Empire, that was like the greatest of them. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And the whole part of the dream was along came this, this ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of God, which would destroy all human kingdoms. Daniel comes and gives the king the dream that he'd forgotten and the interpretation of it. Here's where we left off last week, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrance and incense. He said, surely your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. And then the king promoted Daniel, verse 48, gave him many gifts, made him ruler over the whole providences of Babylon and the chief prefect over the wise men of all of Babylon. And then Daniel said, how about the boys? And the boys were promoted as well. And, and I said last week, just almost in passing, think about this. Here are these young boys from Judah, probably at this time 17, 18 years old, who are now put in charge of all of the wise men of Babylon. That's going to generate some professional jealousy. That's going to generate some animosity and bitterness and resentment. Not, not at Nebuchadnezzar because he's untouchable, but at these boys. And that really begins, it plays itself out today. We saw at the end of chapter 1, we see at the end of chapter 2, and I'll tell you, we're going to see it today at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has this moment where he gets the sense, not that he wants to worship Daniel's God, but he's impressed with Daniel's God. He understands that this is the God, and he declares that. And you kind of wonder, how long is it going to take him to get this? Well, he doesn't get it yet. By the time we get to chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. 
Now, archaeologists have uncovered not the statue, but the base of the statue. The base of the statue was 20 feet high. The statue's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So it's sitting on this absolutely just flat plane. Think of, think of driving from Gila Bend to Yuma. This flat plane, and there's this statue. You might have missed this. It's not gold-plated. It's a gold statue. So the statue is roughly 11 stories high. The sun would hit it. It would dominate really miles and miles and miles around. And as I said, not gold-plated, but solid gold. I have no idea, nor did I find anyone who estimated the amount of gold it would take, where obviously then where I go, what would it cost? You know, what's the value of it? But I don't, I don't, here's what I wrote. It's a lot. That's all I wrote. It's a lot. I don't know. I couldn't get anything specific. Well, well, remember where we left it? Kings going, man, your God is something. He's the God of God. He's the King of Kings. He's really something. Something in this time passes in Nebuchadnezzar's head, and he starts to replay this, and he thinks about that statue, and he says, why should my empire be limited to just the head of gold? Let's make it head-to-toe gold. And Daniel had left him with this dream. Daniel had impressed him to the point where we have to assume the king is serious in verse 47 of chapter 2. Here's is a king, God of gods and the Lord of kings. He's the one who reveals. And he's in this awesome. He pays homage to him. He promotes him. He sees all this. But somewhere along the way, he goes, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle this forever. And here comes this point where indeed Nebuchadnezzar had, in fact, kind of deified God, but then at the same time seems to say, but I won't allow the God of Daniel to set my kingdom aside, my rule will endure. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a chronic problem, and his is more manifest than yours, but it's the same as yours. And we say it frequently from here, at least I do, that I know your besetting sin, even though I may not know you, and it's ego, pride. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with pride and ego. He's rebellious. By the way, after today, there's going to be another one of these amazing moments where Nebuchadnezzar goes, wow. But when you get to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's had a little time to regroup. Look at chapter 4. We'll look at it next week, but just give you a hint of this. Chapter 4, verse 28, there's this dream that happens, and again, Daniel's involved in the vision, and it says, 12 months later... Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king reflected and says, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for my glory and my majesty? <laughs> and finally God says, All right, that's enough. While the words were in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the sovereignty has been removed from you. God lifts up, God puts down. Who's going to win the election in November? Whoever God raises up. Okay? I have certain hope of what I think God's thinking, but, but who knows? God raises up. God raised up Hitler? Yeah. Why? Well, why, why are we spending time on whys? You know, I, I, I'm not trying to be intellectually dismissive. I'm just saying because God has a purpose and God has a plan. And God's raised up Nebuchadnezzar. And look at God's patience. Three different times we have these, these, these huge moments where Nebuchadnezzar sees it, but his chronic problem is, you know what? It's all about me. He's strolling around, and, and if I remember, I, I, I have not prepared chapter 4. If I remember correctly, 
around the palace on the, on the wall, the top of the wall, they used to do chariot races. That's how impressive this was. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar is done with dinner. He's got a little brandy and he's got a cigar. And he's whistling his favorite song, How Great I Art. And he loves this song. Let's listen. Let's talk about me. That's his chronic problem. Well, it really manifests itself here in chapter 3. He says, I, I got a new idea for religion. I don't want to get too hung up on all of this. I may not want to declare myself God, but I'm going to tell you what you can worship. You can worship this statue, this statue of me. Here's how he lays it out, chapter, two, or chapter 3, verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judge, the magistrates, all the rulers in the providence to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates, all the rulers of the providence were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then he heraldly, herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O people, nations, men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre, the trigon, anybody got their lyre with them, by the way, today? The psalter, the bagpipe, that would ruin it all. I don't know what a lyre is, but it can't be worse than a bagpipe. And all the kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the fire, furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the trigon and the psalter and the bagpipe and all the music, all the people, nations, and every man of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So there's the story. You're going to worship this image. Now, if you've been with us, it shouldn't be very difficult to go, well, this isn't going to work for Daniel. We've already seen Daniel resolve. He wouldn't even eat the food. He's certainly not going to bow down to this statue. As I said earlier, what's interesting is Daniel's not mentioned in this chapter, but the boys are. And what you see is that the boys have the same resolve that Daniel had. And obviously what I'm going to plead with you is to be the same resolve that you would have as you face these situations in your life. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. You, you can almost get it in the language. You, you see it in verse 12 when they say there's certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province. You can almost hear the jealousy and the, the bigotry, the resentment in their life. Here's what I want you to see is that that same thing can occur among coworkers and neighbors and classmates and friends. And I add church members, people who look at one another and for whatever reason are incurably insistent upon talking about people, whether it be slander or gossip. What's particularly difficult in the church, of course, is tearing people down rather than building people up. It seems reasonable just understanding sin. 
I'm talking to Sandy a lot this week just about sin. I'm struck by how sin makes life so predictable. How, how you, can, you kind of can count on people to, to sin. Not, not 100% of the time, but sin. So here are these guys, and they got passed over by these little Jewish kids. You know they can't stand these guys. You, you, you know, and, and by the way, if anything, they should be grateful to Daniel, because what did Daniel do? He saved their lives. The king had an edict out to kill all of these guys if they couldn't come up with the interpretation of his dream, and Daniel did. But, but rather than be thankful, they're embittered to him. And they're looking for ways to destroy Daniel and destroy the boys. And this is the occasion. Because they're really confident. And everybody's bowing down. They're looking around. They go, those guys aren't bowing. They said, Daniel's not there. He may be out serving in some other area of the province. We don't know why. He's not there. But, but boy, they, oh, these guys jump all over us. And they respond, verse 9. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of blah, 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 bagpipe and all kind of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship should be cast in the midst of the furnace of the burning, blazing fires. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over us. They just don't say it that way. Namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They said, these guys, they're not bowing down. I don't know if you noticed, king. I don't know if you were looking. We were. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gives orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, uh, then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up? Interestingly enough, there's no answer that's given there. The assumption is obviously, no, they don't. And it's as though he gives them a second chance. Verse 15. He said, now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and the wind of the bagpipe and all music, to fall down and worship uh, the image that I've made very well. I'm going to give you a second chance. There's kind of an assumption, and again, I don't, I don't know that it's true. I don't know it's the driving thing there. Certainly a driving thing in a lot of relationships. And as I said, you can kind of count on sin. There's kind of, kind of this assumption that, guys, I'm going to give you a second chance because maybe you didn't get it. Maybe you didn't understand it. I want you to understand this doesn't happen. Into the fire you go. And it's the idea that everybody has a price. Years ago, first job I ever had really out of college. Now, I, I had a real, one summer I worked construction. The irony of that makes everyone laugh. Um, but it, 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 it worked with these. It was the first time I had to join a union, Okay. It was the first time I was told to slow down. We don't want to be too productive. I don't want to bring those things together. I just want to say we worked very, very slowly. But we paid a lot of money with these guys that had done this job forever. So they would say, a college boy, that would be me, a college boy, go get the sod stretcher. And those of you that have been around know, as I learned, there's no such thing as a sod stretcher, though I spent half the morning looking for one. Oh, did they teach you that at college, college boy? Well, finally I graduated. My father was brilliant, and then he got me that job, and I learned right there, this is not a line of work I'm interested in. When I finished college, I got a job selling 
paper products, like cups like this and stuff. Worked for a guy, really an interesting guy. He, 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 it was just a whole different thing. The end of the first day, he said, how was it? And I said, fine. He said, did you like it? I said, you know, the one thing I don't get is the receptionist. She is the worst. She's bitter and angry and rude. And he said, that's my daughter. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. And he said, no, 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 no. That's why she's she would She couldn't keep a job anywhere else. She's off. Well, this guy, this guy sat and smoked. He was he just smoked, and he, and, he, and he never flipped ashes. He would just smoke until they'd fall off. And we had a restaurant back home called the Gay 90s, and it was very much like Durant's. So if you've been to Durant's, you've been to the Gay 90s. And every day, he went to the Gay 90s. He had a Manhattan lunch and then a Manhattan. So he was easier to deal with in the afternoon than in the morning. And so one day, he said, uh, you know, how's it going? And I told him, I said, I'm working on this client, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get some business in there, put a new product in there. He said, well, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch, and the ashes are falling, and the Manhattans are drinking, and, you know, he's having a prime rib or whatever it was he had. And, and I took him through it, and he said, listen, here's what you got to understand. So this was my first business lesson. Everybody has a price. What's his price? We can get that product in there. We just got in these. It's, it's like a caricature. It's like a cartoon. This stuff is falling down. He said, everybody has a price. We just need to find out what it is. And, and in a way, the king is kind of going, I'm going to give you a second chance because maybe you have a price. Maybe you haven't thought this through. Now, my boss, that guy that I mentioned, taught me a valuable lesson that almost everybody has a price. I, I might not do it for a dollar, but I'll do it for a hundred. I would never do that under normal circumstances. Here's the key, and this is an application point, and it's back to chapter 1, verse 8, is you need to resolve in your mind. Let's go through what you tell your kids. Predecide your decisions. That our convictions are our beliefs and actions. That what we truly believe will affect how we behave. In, in James chapter 1, I'm not going to have you turn there. James, James is talking about faith. He said, but, but we must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea and driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from God. He's, he's double-minded. He's unstable in, in all his ways. And, and James is saying, listen, this, this, there needs to be a, a resolution to this. These boys understood a whole bunch of stuff, including they had talked about this. My assumption is, and again, it's not in the text, but boy, it seems reasonable, that, that these guys in Daniel, remember when, when Daniel was confronted with, you've got to go figure out the dream? It, it didn't say he called a meeting. It just say he went home, and there were the boys there, and they were praying. My guess is they weren't sitting around at night watching ESPN or playing video games. They were talking about life and talking about situations. My assumption would be, at least it would be in my life, that they would have role-played this, and they would have talked about all the options. They would have talked about things that are going to come up. And while they may not have talked specifically about if there's an image of gold, or, or, are we in fact going to bow down and worship? They might not have talked about it specifically. They certainly had those principles in mind. So when it came up and the king confronted them and said, listen, they didn't have to answer. That was a done deal for them. They were confident in this. Turn to the book of Exodus because this is what's driving it. Page 40 in the Bible you got from us. Exodus chapter 20. 
And so this really settles the whole matter. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Heading on this may likely say the Ten Commandments. So these boys understood this. They knew where they stood. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous in the right way. When I think of jealousy, I think of something like, I don't want you to have this, or, or you have that. I think of something that, 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 that's all about me, and God says, this is not about me. I want what's best for you. I'm a jealous God, and what you need to do is glorify me, and I will not share that glory with anyone or anything. That's what an idol is. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Again, the end of 1 John. John ends this way, little children... John 5, 21, guard yourselves from idols. Not just big 90-foot statues on 20-foot pedestals, but anything that creeps into your life that its presence usurps the attention, the worship, the time, the energy, the effort should be devoted to God. It's devoted to this, whatever it is. Uh, we're, uh, uh, as I mentioned, up in Flagstaff and and there's just a whole bunch of guys. And, and, and this is, I, I, anytime you use something, it sounds so judgmental. So I apologize in advance. I just don't mean it to be judgmental. But they play golf like four days a week. Really? Seriously? I played one day and I left the house at 7.30 and got back at like 2.30. That's the whole day. Every day, four or five times. Really? And it could be anything. An idol can be anything. It could be your kids. It could be something good. It could be work. It could be anything. And God says, listen, I'm not going to share that attention with anything, any person, place, or thing. That just isn't going to happen. Well, these guys knew this, so they're very confident because they know this is what God has said to them. They're confident, not cocky. They're confident in God. Nebuchadnezzar says to them in the last part of verse 15, if you don't worship, you will be immediately cast in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. And what God is there that can deliver you out of my hand? Well, he forgot, he forgot what he declared just a chapter ago, didn't he? This is the God of God. He forgets. People forget. I love this. Verse 16, 17, and 18. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. He said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. We know this God. He's able to deliver us out of this. You're saying nobody can. Our God can. Have you forgotten already what we saw? The answer is yes. And then I love verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I made a list just really simple here of three things that sustained these guys. Number one, they knew God was sovereign. They knew he was able. They knew he was God. That's what they said. He's able. He can do this. He rules over you. It's all the things that Daniel said. 
It's all the things that we know. It's how we define God in the sense that we say God either caused or allowed everything in our life. And if that statement's not true, he's not God. He's the God that rules over all the universe and every square inch of it. He's the God who has absolutely authority over every person, place, thing, everything that's created. Nothing can usurp his plan. They understand the sovereignty of God. That's a matter of faith. The author of Hebrews talks about faith. In fact, for, for many of us, it's kind of the definition we use of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me have you turn there. It's page 652 in the Bible we gave you. So we're back in the New Testament. Boy, Mark Daniel, because obviously we're coming back to that. Hebrews chapter 11, and it's known as the Hall of Fame of Faith because there's this long list of men and women who demonstrated in their life their faith, and then God blessed them in terms, if you will, of success. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 1 this way, the fundamental fact of the existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It, it gives us the assurance of things hoped for. So when we think things, things hoped for, we have to kind of rethink that word just a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I do this time of year when I go to Flagstaff is I'll make a trip down to Barnes & Noble and I'll buy two or three college football magazines. They're all out. Uh, I've made the mistake of kind of all knowing and uh, uh, knowing what they have in all the, the magazines. And I, they have like Iowa preseason. One of, I think one of them had 32 in the nation, 144, 153rd or something. So every year, every year, there's this level of anticipation as, as the season begins. And then the disappointment. If you're a Cubs fan, you know what this is like. It's the 4th of July, and the Cubs are mathematically eliminated already. I mean, this is brutal this year. So uh, Sandy and, and, and Sarah and Haley and I are going to go back for the Iowa-Iowa State game. Okay? And this will be like Haley's fifth game. She hasn't seen Iowa win a game yet. And so we, the other day, just said, in our, I, I hope the Hawks win. Well, here's what we mean is maybe they will, maybe they won't. Hope they do. Be great trip if they do. It's, it's something that, that's clearly not decided yet. That's not the way this word is used here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the things hoped for. In other words, it's the things that we've been told are true, and we are anticipating them like we anticipate as a little kid. Anticipate Christmas Day. Faith. That's the thing that gives assurance to these things we've been told. How important is faith? Look at verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're told this over and over and over again. Faith in its simplest way, I guess, is to distrust God, to believe God's who he said he was, and this is as he said, and this is his word, and God said it, and that settles it, and it doesn't even matter whether you believe it or not, it's going to be settled, Jesus is Lord, whether you believe it or not, and hopefully you've come to the point where you declare that. That's that idea of faith. That's what the boys demonstrated. Back to Daniel, that's what they're saying in, in verse 15, uh, 17. God is able to deliver us. We know this. We know that he's the God who delivers. He's the God who heals. 
by the way, that doesn't obligate him. That's what they're saying in verse 18. But even if he doesn't, that doesn't mean he isn't God. He's the God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. He's supreme. He's absolute. He's the authority, and they understand that. He's sovereign. He rules. Here's the second thing they had is they knew their scriptures. They knew their scripture. So when along comes this issue, it's really not a difficult issue to decide in terms of what to do. Different maybe to do it, but they've been told, listen, you can't bow down. They didn't have to group think this. God said it. And in a sense, it's as simple as that for us. If God says do it, do it. If he says get away from it, get away from it. Now, not all issues, honestly, are that clear. But God has given us what we've said to you before, if you will, an open book test. I remember the thing I like, I never liked math in school. I never liked math. I never liked English. I never liked science. I never liked, I'm trying to think what are the other classes. I liked history. Uh, what was it? Yes, yeah, civics I didn't mind. Writing I didn't get. But, but, but I like those classes. But the thing that redeemed math was that all the answers were in the back of the book. Well, I thought that was a great feature. So that'd be the equation. I always had the right answer. But if, if Sister Mary Hilda said, how did you get it? I'd have to go, I, it was in the back of the book. Because I wouldn't know how I got there. Well, here's what God says. This life is an open book test. Here's all the answers right here. That's what we've said before when we talked about 2 Timothy. We talked about 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, and he tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So the way we like to say, we get our arms around it, right? The Bible tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right. So this becomes absolutely essential to us. For, for us to function in this world the way that God would have us function, we have to know his word. And this is, if you will, in a sense, a classroom. And then tomorrow, you're going out in the laboratory. And not, not to see if it's true. We know it's true. Not to see if it works. We know it works. But to see if indeed you have the faith to trust God. The third thing they knew, and this is interesting, they were willing to die for this. Their, their convictions were going to drive them. Now, in all likelihood, you are not going to be asked to die for your faith. I have this, I don't know if it's true or not. But I have in my mind that, like, if they broke in here right now, and they came in here, and they said, all right, you're the guy up front, we're going to go with you first, and you, you deny Christ or we'll kill you. Now, I would go, well, how are you going to kill me? Because I'd like it to be a shot, like really close. I don't, well, I don't want any of this slow torture stuff. Well, we're going to blow your brains out. And I would say, okay, I want to make sure I understand this. If I deny Christ, okay, okay, I'm okay. But if I don't deny him, you're going to blow my brains out. I think, I think, I would just take the nozzle of that gun and put it right here and say, just do it fast. I think I'd do that. I think I would. Because I think it's a lot harder to live for Christ than die for him. Now, I don't know if that's totally true. 
You know, I was reading, I'm doing a lot of reading. I was reading the other day about them taking the Christians in Rome and dipping them in this wax and then lighting them on fire. Yeah, I don't know how I'd do with that. But if we stay with the illustration I have on the table, okay, I just think that's easy. I, if you knew you were going to die tonight, I, no, the hard part is, is living for it. I do that all the time. There's simple illustrations. If your kid was out swimming, you'd risk your life to go get that kid. But many of you won't take time to come home from work to spend time with a kid in the minute. Much easier to die for your kid than live for him. Interesting. But man, it was resolved in their mind. Now, are you going to be asked to die for your faith? I doubt it. But you will, perhaps, experience a loss of popularity, <laughs> if some of you have any of it. Loneliness, people pull away from you. Ridicule, maybe it'll cost you economically. But these guys, are, no, this is, this is a big deal. 45%, it's a little bit of an older survey. I have no reason to think it's different now. 45% of high school seniors said they could not think of one thing they would die for. Now, now think of the implications of that. Not family, not friends, not faith, not country. You take all the things historically. So if you begin to think, and I have to be careful here because I get very negative very quickly. But if you begin to think about the things that made America great, Uncle Sam wants you. They go, who cares? None of those things are going to work on this generation. Even the army finally figured it out. Because they tend to, Uncle Sam wants you, they turn it around to what? Be all you can be. About you, ultimately. Well, otherwise, we're never going to get anybody in this thing. These are wonderful examples, if you will, of a kind of collision between this world. James Boyce, and I, and I reread this book uh, this week. It's called Two Cities, Two Loves, and it's Boyce's kind of take on Augustine's City of God. It's really good. And in there, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar is a secular humanist. And he's saying just simply, Nebuchadnezzar is because, like all secular humanists, he believes everything exists that's of man, by man, and for man's glory. Now, now you, you see the collision course there, right? So the world says it's all of man. We say, no, God did it. It's created by man. That's all evolution. You can see, and, and you look back, and, and I think a lot of people, and I could be wrong on this, but I think a lot of people kind of poo-pooed, oh, the evolution thing's not that big. These things aren't that big. Man, now they're in the water. Evolution comes along. This is perfect. And it says we can figure it out. If we can't figure it out, then it doesn't exist. Or it's, it's explainable. So take away God. That's what it ultimately does. Set you up for the whole world you have around you. The other thing about secular humanists, I'm going to just touch on it, though I know it's kind of, it kind of can be explosive. It, and this comes again from, from Boyce conversation. Secular humanists today currently defined a doctrine of separation of church and state, which used to mean the king won't get in the church, the church won't get in the king. That they, they, they are both servants of God. Now, the alarming thing, and I'll just mention it for me, is that there seems to be clearly the word from the state that says, don't, don't bring that faith in here. Though every one of these guys can't finish a speech during an election year without God bless America, I don't know what it means in their equation. But what's alarming to me 
is that those of us in the church are somehow beginning to say, I don't think I should be messing around with the state. I think there's a concern there. You live in a country, and God's brought you here sovereignly, and he's placed you here. And, and the, the fastest way, I think, to see this country head south further and faster than it is is for the church to say, oh, that's dirty, that's secular, and, and this is sacred. No. We, we need to be involved. We need to be engaged in these issues. C- can you imagine during the time of slavery going, you know what, that's really a state issue. I don't think the church should be involved. These are all issues, moral issues. These are moral issues that God speaks to it, and when you be careful, maybe if I have time, I'll talk about it at the end, but we need to be careful there. So all these are intertwined. So God has declared here, listen, you, you will be taken care of, you can be taken care of, but even if he doesn't, why, why would God put him in something like this and not take care of him? I made a list of four things. N- number one, it makes your faith stronger. My daughter Sarah, I think it was her junior sophomore year of high school, I don't know, was in this terrible accident, had a brain seizure, yada, yada, yada. I come to church on Sunday, and I must have heard from a half a dozen people, God is good, Sarah's going to live. So I took my notes, put them away, and did a message that Sunday that was titled, God is good even if she dies. I don't judge God based on my circumstances. God! Not good because things happen to us that are good. Why would he allow something like that to happen? Well, the testing of our faith produces endurance. Here's the second thing. It gives you a great testimony. I watched Susan for seven years, and I heard people say, oh, she's so strong. And, and I would go, wow, because I'm with her a lot, and she is strong. But my fear was it trivialized how difficult life was for her. But you have a testimony. Here you go. It's a, it's a third thing. It allows you to serve others and to be served difficult times. And the fourth thing is you have something to say. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You can say, I've been there. So that's why God may bring. There's other things that God may bring in your life. Why would he allow it to be burnt up? His good, their glory. <laughs> really? Yeah. I love verse 18. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve your God. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's God. I'm not. He doesn't owe me an explanation. I was with a lady who became a follower of Christ. Husband was a, a Jewish chap. He hated Jesus and he hated everything around it. And she was dying. I went to see her in the hospital. She was dying of cancer. And I got there right as he was delivering. He was a Jewish attorney. He was delivering this, this powerful message to her that ended with, Where's your God now? This poor lady is dying. I just think that shows the angry. I think she's angry. It's not against her, but against God. So you have it. Where is God on 9-11? Same place he was on 9-10. Where's God in the 9-11s in your life? Well, where's what we, here's what we do know. We know this. He's on the throne and he rules. I wrote this down. In essence, here's what the boys are saying. We won't be surprised if he gets out of the fire, and we won't be disappointed if he doesn't. If he gets us out of here, that's certainly going to surprise us because we've seen that over and over again. And if he doesn't, that doesn't make him any less God. <laughs> Verse 19, this is cool. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and his facial expression was altered. You know, <laughs> one of the paraphrases says, his face 
uh, uh, turned purple with anger. So, so just see that? Get that person that's so angry. And he answered them, and he gave an order. Now, this is interesting. He gave an order to turn the heat of the furnace up seven times more than it was usually heated. Well, in reality, at that point, he's doing the boys a favor, isn't he? That would be a lot better than turn it down and crockpot me to death. <laughs> turn it a hundred times up. I'd be doing that. He's not thinking. He's mad. And he's commanded certain valiant warriors of his army, and they get them, and they're going to take them. And now what they had to do is walk up and drop them in this. So they took them, and you see in verse 21, they, all their clothes are on. They tied them up, their trousers, the coat, tied up. For this reason, because of the king's command, the, the, fire, the fire is just raging. It's extremely hot. And the, the flame slew the men who carried the guys up. This thing is so hot that as these guys carry up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they get ready to throw these guys who are throwing them in get burned up. But in they go, the three of them. They fell into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. They're still tied up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar apparently is watching all of this. And he's astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said, wait, 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 wait. Was it not three men we bound and cast into the midst of the fire? Guys, help me. Wasn't it three of them? Weren't there three of them? Yeah. But they replied, certainly. And he said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the, of the gods. Isn't that awesome? He says, I'm looking in there. This can't, this can't be right. I know there were three of them, right? Yeah. Any of the other guys stumbling? No, they all burnt up. Well, there's a fourth one. And we know who that is, don't we? That's a pre-incarnate Christ. That's Jesus. I tell you what, if you can't, like, preach this verse, then they ought to shoot you and just never get to preach, get preach ever again. Because you can take that and go, okay, here you go. Because we're, we're told. Peter tells us back in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, listen, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals among you. You're going to have fiery ordeals in your life. And I know what it's like. I'm human. I got you. I understand. I think just like you. I don't know if I can handle this. One more piece of, of bad news. I don't know if I can take it. What sustains you? Because you're in that fire walking around, and all of a sudden, the doctor that gave you the news or the boss that fired you or the kid that unleashed his wrath on you, all of a sudden, they're looking, and they're going, oh, my gosh, it's not just you. There's somebody there, too. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. Oh, that's make-believe. No. No, that's real. It, it, it is a wonderful picture of what takes place in our life. That there's going to be those fire ordeals. You don't want them. And there's almost something in you that would be a little sick if you said, I want it, and yet it's for your own good. Why would, why would God let that baby die? Scream right on cue. <laughs> why, why, why would God? I was, talk, I was talking to a guy the other day. He's a real estate guy, and, and we were talking up in Flag, and it just it, it, whole, everything just fell apart. 
Why would God let it all fall apart? Why would God, and then you fill in the blank, why would he? Well, I don't know. I don't know that I can give you the specific reason why. I can give you the general reason why. For your good and his glory. Because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And he says, listen, I'll sustain you. It's what they said. He's able to deliver. Do you believe God can put this deal together? Sure. Could God not take that? Sure. But he didn't. He's the potter. i got to go through this every day of my own life. He's the potter. I'm the clay. That's why I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. He's God. I'm not. And the way I would do it is oftentimes radically different than how God does it. They're in that fire. They're walking around. Nebuchadnezzar comes near the door of the furnace. And he responds. <laughs> Here's what he says. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. Servants of the Most High God, come here. Then they came out. They came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps, these, these boys have got to be very confused at this point. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Not a hair on their head was singed. Nor were their trousers damaged. They didn't even smell like smoke. You can't even light a barbecue and get away with this. Nebuchadnezzar responded here. This is a classic end to every chapter. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent the angel and delivered the servants and put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any other god. He said, there's that, there's that same, there's that same one we talked about last week. There's that God of the gods and the Lord of the kings. That's him. He protected him. And all the boys, what did they do? They trusted him. They trusted him and he protected them. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego shall be, and this should sound familiar, this seems to be his go-to line. Back in chapter 2, verse 5. This is his motivational tool as it comes to management and leadership. Okay? Anybody who violates this, this isn't going to be good because you'll be torn limb from limb and your house will be reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there's no other God that's able to deliver in this way. And then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Look at these guys. This is amazing, these guys. But I don't want you to sit in a sense, cut me slack now, using the word slightly different, and look at them as idols. They, they could certainly be heroes to you. I wouldn't say role models. I make a distinction. Heroes kind of somebody you don't know, like Mickey Mantle's a hero. A, royal, a role model is somebody you can get on the phone to me. They can be heroes to you, and you can really admire. But you know, here's what I want you to see. There's nothing special about them. They're ordinary guys who are submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what makes them extraordinary. They're no different than you. The thing that makes them unique is that they handle things in a supernatural way because they know the God that created all of this. James Boyce writes this sentence, Redemption does not change our participation in the culture. Rather, it changes us. Therefore, the character of all involvement. And I want to make that point. They're very engaged, excuse me, in the world around them. You're going to have the opportunity in the next few days, weeks, months, whether it's at work, uh, whether it's at the gym, 
Uh, Tim, Timmy's helping Tyler coach the boys. I don't know what it is, age six and seven in Yale is how I always say it. And, and, and so the last game, and this team they have really scores a lot of points. It's, it's impressive to me. Regulation baskets in their six, seven, and, and Yale, four. And they scored 49 points the other day. That's a lot of points. Well, at the end of the third quarter, the mom from the other team spent the entire time out just yapping at the, I mean, she's out on the court with the referees. How does that work? And then she came over and said, hey, listen, what are you doing tomorrow? You want to join me at church? You're going to have the opportunity to manifest the indwelling Holy Spirit over and over again because you're in opposition to the world. And they're not going to throw you in the fire, at least not yet. But they're going to throw in your version of the fire. I come back to these same things because there's you know, financial hardship, physical hardship, difficulties, relational, whatever it is. And you have the power not to survive but to triumph because it's not about you. It's about him. But I want you to see, and, and you're going you're to see it all the way through this, these six chapters. They are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and They're fully engaged with the culture around them. And they understand that in that engagement with the culture around them, the strongest asset they have is their, their love of God. Let me, let me just take you to, and, and it's a passage. Have you turn to 2 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's a passage that's used over and over again, and I understand, so you don't need to email me. I understand that it's to the nation of Israel, but I think you can pull some principles out of this. What do we do with a culture? I've had, I've had seven days up in Flagstaff, okay? And, and I've, I've read a lot, but I've watched a lot of the stuff on TV, and I just, I have to really guard myself because I get so negative. Yeah, yeah, well, I didn't, yeah. There's nothing productive going to come out of that. But I can also get cynical, and then I can say, well, what should I do? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, is this, is this a promise? I don't know. Is this a formula that guarantees that everything will turn out all right? I don't know. But I do know this. He tells us as we engage in this culture, we need to humble ourselves. There's, there's something particularly... Uh, there's a way to confront the culture... That, that seems like I'm participating and I'm helping. There's another way that seems arrogant. To, to, to stand at the funeral of a man who died from AIDS and start screaming these things at the family does not seem humble to me. And to pray. I uh, was invited years ago to pray at, the, at a city council meeting in Chandler. And I got there... And they said, uh-oh, we forgot that it's the closing prayer. I said, you got to be kidding me. So I sat through that whole thing. They're frustrated. I'm frustrated. And then the mayor was great. You know, he said, Reverend, which I'm looking around to see what they're talking about. Reverend Tom Schrader will close our prayer. So I'm looking up, and you can see these guys. Because I think most guys, when they get there, that's their opportunity to preach to the city council. So I said, Father, we come before you tonight for two reasons. One, we think you care. Two, we think you can do something about it. Please do. Amen. <laughs> That's to me what prayer is. 
That's the reason I'm praying. The, the whole point in me praying is assuming you care and you can do something about it, if nothing else, than to change my heart in the midst of it. And then he says to seek my face, to find my favor, to turn from the world, and to repent, to turn from our sin. So as you engage in the culture, I think there's a great formula for you. That's what these boys did, man. They had it figured out. They decided. They didn't hesitate. I'll tell you another thing I think is a great advantage for them is that there were the three of them. If they'd have been there alone, I assume it would have had the same outcome. I don't know. But I think for, I think for Shadrach to go, eh, I, think, I, think, I, I think they would have gone, no, no, no. Let's go in this thing together. He is a great God. He's an awesome God. He's a supreme God. He's the sovereign God. We need to know his word so we can encounter the world around us, engage it, lovingly serve that world, but never worship that world or the false gods. Boy, next week, Nebuchadnezzar, finally God, I'm already tired of this. Finally God goes, all right, that's enough of that. And Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't know the story, you need to read ahead. Nebuchadnezzar has a interesting experience uh, for seven, seven he's so stupid it took him seven years to figure that out so that's how hard our hearts are we'll pick up right there next week father thank you for this awesome amazing truth you are a great god thank you for loving us caring for us god thank you that you're sovereign we love you God, we know there are people here who are hurting, and we just pray that, that they would understand that there are men and women in the front of the room right now who exist to meet with them. God, thank you that you love us even more than we love ourselves, and we serve you, and we do that in Christ's name. Amen.